This is a CBC podcast. Enterbase 6121, we're 10-8 mobile. 6121, You'll see kind of as we're, we're driving around, one of the most popular calls that'll kind of come over the radio is a man down. So those calls are always tricky for us because you never really know what you're going to get yourself into. Lots of those calls turn out to be opiate overdoses as well. Paramedic Jameson Shortreed says in the five years he's been on the road, he's watched the toxic drug crisis take over. When I first started, opiates were like hardly around, right? You'd do one and it was, your, your heart's pounding out of your chest because, you know, you're not doing stuff like this very often. And now it's, it's every day that as sad as it is like an opiate overdose call has become the most nonchalant call for me because I've done them so many times like my body just (laughs) has become numb to it we're in Thunder Bay Ontario for a special edition of the house I'm Catherine Cullen this beautiful small city on the shore of Lake Superior has more overdose deaths per capita than anywhere in the province among the highest in the country And this is a problem hitting so many places in Canada. The latest numbers show on average 21 people are dying of opioid overdoses every day. To better understand this devastating national crisis, we've come to Thunder Bay to meet people who are trying to save their community. Now, let's get back to the ambulance with Jameson and his partner, Kessia Yeomans. Um, So yeah, we're driving into one of our little tent cities as they call it here. We've got tents kind of littered all over the place, covered with tarps. We've got fires and barrels, just pallets being burned, just people trying to stay warm. Um, People hanging up their laundry to dry. Jameson is taking us past a growing encampment, one of the places they're sometimes called for overdoses. The two paramedics have been talking about how the drug crisis has changed their work. It's insane to me <laughs> how how much it is it has grown me and Cassie we were looking at just the opiate numbers since the COVID-19 pandemic and the number of calls that we're doing for or the number of opiate related calls that we're doing per month has doubled we had a huge spike when COVID hit that was when our overdose calls increased and we noticed that we were averaging you know one one a day and now we're up to two a day we started with 20 something calls a month to 30 to 40 to 60 and now we're in 70 80 and we're going up to the 100s in a month what about the drugs themselves and the toxicity of what's out on the streets right now it's scary like you're buying something in the city and you don't know what you're getting right and it, it makes it very dangerous for a person I've seen just marijuana that's been laced with fentanyl, right? And I've gone to 16-year-old girls that have overdosed because they bought something from the wrong person. There's zero accountability for the people that are making this. For me, the saddest part of it is how young they're getting involved in it. We have 13, 14-year-olds who are being drug mules. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. We'll drive by a few, a few of our little hot spots here. 
there's buildings down in this area that I, I myself will not enter with po without police presence, just because they they've gotten that bad. Have you ever have you ever felt um, like physically in danger in in one of those places? Like had to go in alone, and, and your safety's been in jeopardy. Um, not one of these places just because I know that they are very dangerous places so I, I, I won't unless there's a police presence there there's other times though right lots of this time we don't know what we're getting into uh, there have been times where I've I've been very scared I've had knives pulled on me all this kind of stuff um, we've been called to break and enterings in progress uh, police have no one to send um, the assailant possibly cut themselves on the window so they need um, EMS I imagine you didn't train for that in school. No, um, and that's where we feel a little bit let down by other resources, but to no fault of the police officers, they, they're trying to allocate other resources because they don't have enough. Um, but it also makes it completely inappropriate for EMS to be the first ones responding to dangerous situations like that. To your mind, what would be one or two of the most powerful things that could be done for Thunder Bay that you think would really make a difference? I think one of the biggest things that Thunder Bay needs is just a proper detox facility, a properly staffed detox facility. I've called down to our detox facility numerous, numerous times. Once, maybe twice in my career, I think I've actually gotten a spot for somebody there. I think when a person comes to that realization that they need help, they need that help then, right? There's there's a finite window. I would say a good percentage of people when we are called to them are requesting a detox facility and we are the ones who have to tell them there are no beds available. I'm sorry. So I think individuals who are suffering from this, they don't want to be where they are, um, but there's also nowhere for them to go. I can see how passionate you are about this and I wonder what the feeling is like is it frustration anger sadness it's just frustrating for me it's disappointing and it's frustrating because you can see what the solution would be <laughs> um, and action not being taken um, this is years we've put in requests for proper and appropriate resources and services so I guess yeah frustration disappointment we have the potential we know what the solutions are we need people who are just as passionate about it to get the ball rolling thunder bay is a beautiful city it has a lot to offer the potential the wildlife the nature it's beautiful and that's what we want us to be known for we don't want to be known as the murder capital the drug capital anything like that so i feel like if people can understand that it is a means of funding and resources and things like that, like the solutions are there. We just need people who, who are in power to make those proper, those right decisions. Then we get a call for a middle-aged man in distress, suffering from chest pain. Specifically, can you point to where you're feeling I feel like my heart's going to stop How about we get you onto our stretcher, and that way we can look you up to our monitor, check your vital signs, and take a look at your heart, okay? The man is a patient they see a lot. He struggles with alcohol. Cassia talks to him about his options on the way to the hospital. Send me to treatment or something, or detox. You'd be willing to go to detox or treatment if it was yeah. available to you? Yeah. 
With just 25 detox beds in the city for drugs and alcohol, he probably won't get a space. And that reality is hard for Thunder Bay's paramedics, too. It's clear this job has taken an emotional toll on Jameson. Oh, it, it absolutely, absolutely affects me. And there's personal reasons why this opiate crisis affects me, maybe more than it may affect others. But it's, it's sad to see. It's walking up to the feet sticking halfway out of the alley and wondering when I flip that person over if it's going to be somebody that I know. It's become that bad in the city where you're running into friends, family members, people you may, may know vicariously through others that have kind of succumbed to this addiction and this crisis that we're having. That, that's happened to you? Um, yeah. Like, just going out and saying it, like, my father, he's, he's a drug addict. So one of my biggest fears is coming to a call, and I've had it before, right, where I've just been overcome with anxiety rolling up to a call anytime we get a 50s-year-old male potential overdose, right? It's, it's, it's very hard because it has touched me personally. And I see these people and I feel for these people because I've gone through it. I've seen what it does firsthand. It, it can definitely be tough. I've had my struggles with it. I feel like I've, I've worked through to a place where, you know, it's not as detrimental to me being at work but it, it definitely still weighs on me absolutely like I said when that 50 year old male possible overdose call comes in that's when that's when the heart starts thumping again right we we do coffee we do like sometimes we do breakfast lunch and supper if we have the means to do so some people who use drugs in Thunder Bay can find a little comfort at Pace, a drop-in centre. Let's just say if they don't have anywhere to go, this is where they hang out. And honestly, it just it becomes a part of their routine. Come and have coffee. We've come here to hear from people who have made it out of addiction, who know that getting access to detox and rehab can be the difference between life and death. Like peer support worker Vanessa Tukane. We try to laugh a lot with each other. Because um, not all staff, but lots of us are all in recovery. So it's important to share that part of ourselves, right? Because I'm just like everybody in the room here. The only difference is I just don't use drugs today. Another big staff presence here is Kyle Arnold. Tall and covered in tattoos, he's the program coordinator. He understands the draw and the devastation of addiction. When I was just before a teenager, around 11, 12 years old, I started working at a bike store and I was molested every day when I went to work and that started trauma for me. Um, Shortly after that, my biological father passed away. That was more trauma. And then I started kind of dabbling in the drug world and then um, I started selling drugs and I took one night off and the guy that I was selling with he went to do a delivery and they murdered him. And that was pretty much enough for me. And I got right into that culture, ended up doing in and out of jail, ended up getting involved with gangs, and really ended up just devoting my life to drugs. It's, it's for 20 years, it's all I knew. You know, I had parents at home that loved me. I had siblings that loved me. It wasn't that. You know, I come from a middle-class family. It wasn't that. It was just that trauma. My biological father was an addict. 
and um, I hadn't seen him since I was a year old. But yet, the moment that trauma happened in my life and I used a substance, I was hooked. It was the only way I knew how to deal with things, and it was rough. I've had a few heart attacks, I've had strokes. I've been put in some pretty horrific uh, situations, and I haven't always been probably the most loving, kindest person. Um, But I did what I had to to survive. Kyle's from Victoria. A few years ago, he ended up stranded in Thunder Bay after a car accident. He was cold, living on the street. But he finally managed to stop using, in part because there was a place for him to get sober. I spent like three weeks at Salvation Army, and I wanted to quit. And I would get a couple days, and then I would fall on my face. I would get a couple days, and and I kept doing that. And then the workers there started getting me to do chores. Uh, So I would wash the floors, wash the walls. I had a big ego, so uh, they got me to clean toilets. That helped break the ego down. And they really pushed me, I guess, to do better. And what did it for me is my dad, when my dad died, he died from a multi-organ failure from sclerosis of the liver, and he had HIV, which he got through drug use. So I had never shared a needle. So December 25th, 2018, a guy overdosed in the bathroom of uh, the shelter. And when they carted him away on the stretcher, I looked down and there was a used needle with drugs in it. And I picked it up and I did it. And with how my dad had gone, that was a rock bottom for me. You know, it's, it's amazing that that was what did it for me. Prison didn't do it. Uh, being tied up and tortured countless times didn't do it. But that was enough. That that was it. I ended up meeting a guy just before that at um, a McDonald's here, covered in tattoos like me. And we ended up talking, and I was like, and he told me he was at this place called Three C's, and it was a recovery home. So I had put in my application, and then the workers at Salvation Army had started to advocate for me. And I was about two weeks, three weeks clean, living at the shelter still, and I got a call. And the guy said, well, if you can come and you can pee clean, coming out of a shelter, you can have a bed. I was fortunate. I only waited a few weeks, and it was like my whole world just aligned and everything started falling into place. What do you tell people here about your own story to give them hope that they can get sober? If you walk down the road and you look for the guy that's 130 pounds, strung out, that everybody said will never get clean, that's who I was. I had no chance. I was done. I was dying, and I got clean. And that's why, with everything in my heart, I know that anybody on these streets can do it. Because there's nothing special about me that's any different than any of them. Nothing. I would think you'd have to have a special level of determination to devote so much of your life to helping people now I owe it that's how I look at it I'm making amends for a lot of things I've done in my life that weren't the best Vanessa also has a family history of addiction and trauma she spent time in foster care and says her mother was an alcoholic I really thought that I was going to be different I thought that I would be nothing like my mom I always struggled with mental health I started using, started in high school just smoking weed. And then um, I drink a little. 
and I and I didn't really see that it was a problem because I didn't really do it excessively but like when I did bad things would happen I know one of the first times I drank I got raped I think I was 15 years old and then I didn't drink after that and then I got pregnant at 17 had my da- first daughter at 18 my second daughter at 20 and I was in an abusive relationship with their dad and I just um I remember so vividly like taking that first drug and it was like that sense of relief like I had never felt before and I knew from the moment I took my first hit that I was screwed um, because I had never wanted something so bad that was when I was 21 when I was 24 I got into fentanyl and that changed everything and um, I went on a seven-year bender after that during that time you know, I, I learned early on in my addiction that I could, like, I could use myself, right? I, I could use myself to get what I wanted. And, and for a while, it was, it wasn't like I really had to. I could just play off of it. I didn't really, in an exchange kind of a thing, sell myself. But when I got addicted to fentanyl, I think it was like a month later, like I was working on the street just on Mackenzie over here when I worked on the street for seven years I lived out there survived out there stayed up all night being cold having nowhere to go bouncing from trap house to trap house abusive relationship to another one things I survived were like rape kidnapping a lot of those things that I did to survive not just for my drug habit but to feed myself to house myself Um, I pay for that today still um, with how I think and feel about myself. And, you know, I've overdosed countless times. I remember I would overdose, wake up in the hospital, and my first thought is to, like, I'm dope sick. I'm eating. And I would go in the bathroom and get high again. Like, I was so insane. I didn't even, like, that's crazy. And today I know that that's crazy, but that's some normal stuff. That happens every day. So how, how did you stop? I, um... I was in the hospital. I had a feeding tube. Um, I had kidney failure. I had pneumonia. I had fluid in my stomach. Um, I had three different infections. I had a tube in every hole of my body. And I was strapped to the bed because the withdrawals, I would hallucinate. Um, It was really intense. And and they called my family in because I, I was dying. And I just lived. But for the grace of whatever I survived and I did day treatment at six months residential treatment at seven months sober and then I stayed in the recovery home till I was one year sober I got the job at pace through my life experience two weeks through Kyle before my one year I I really followed all of the suggestions and I just took things really slow because the risk of going back was my life I knew that I was gonna die if you pick up where you leave off I left off on my deathbed I was gonna die and I just couldn't when I thought about all these things I was gonna have to do to continue using I just couldn't do it anymore let me ask you we're talking about a very difficult situation in Thunder Bay which is part of a very difficult situation across the country Talk to me about where you find hope. I was a lost cause. I was literally standing on a corner, strung out all the time. I was like 90 pounds, and and, and I had lived that way for so long. Like, my family had accepted that I was just going to die that way. 
and and I started to believe it too and, and it was so impossible and so hard for me but you know I tapped into some of those community resources and I really am so grateful that I just had workers who went over and above for me I feel so lucky every single day because and and it's sad sometimes like that's not gonna happen for everybody and a lot of people aren't going to make it. Vanessa has turned her life around. She's gone back to school. Like Kyle, she is in a good relationship. And she's expecting a baby boy. But they both see the city straining under the weight of the drugs and the gangs who sell them. The toxic drug supply comes down to it is the toxic drug supply. And I think our toxicity is a lot different than the big cities. In the big cities, when they want to color drugs, they use cake mix. That's how they color the drugs. And here, according to the police, they use Mr. Clean. That's how they color the drugs, because Mr. Clean comes in all different colors. So when you're in a community like this that is so far away... Even when I sold drugs in a big city, there was always a quality level you had to have. Like any business, you have to have quality. But up here, you don't have to have quality. It's demand. And when you can sell a drug up here for four to six times what it goes for in Toronto, people are up here making a fortune. They come from all over the country to come sell drugs here because our drugs are so expensive. They go for so high. We have gangs showing up from all over Canada to try to get rich. And we have a police force that can't keep up. They can't keep up. It's not their fault. They literally cannot keep up. The amount of shootings, gang violence, human tra- like we're a human trafficking hub here too. We sit on Lake Superior. Right? All that's going on here. And we have this small police force that's supposed to deal with it all. We have a big city drug problem in a little city. And we're funded like a little city. So what can the police do? Thunder Bay also has the worst homicide rate in the country. Last year, it was more than five times the national average. And the force itself is beleaguered by allegations of racism, workplace harassment and misconduct, and outstanding concerns about police treatment of sudden death cases involving Indigenous people. We had 15 homicides last year, and out of that 15, 14 had been solved in the courts, and one was on its way of being solved. In May, Chief Darcy Fleury was brought in to turn things around. Here's part of our conversation. Yeah, we have high numbers. We also have very good clearance rates. Not that that's a benefit to any of the people that have lost loved ones, but it is something that's a very strong indication that the department is taking really good steps towards uh, working in, and, and professionally solving these matters. The, the presence of crime is, is very strong here. Right. I mean, we took a ride along with paramedics and they were saying, like, that's a drug house, that's a drug house. What are some of the most important things that you need to do to try to tamp down on that? Number one, we can never enforce our way out of this. It's a situation where we have to have community involvement, community engagement. As soon as I arrived here, we began working with all our different agencies that, you know, mental health, addictions, housing, social services. So as far as enforcement goes, you know, if we go down and we see somebody's in a situation, 
we're trying to get them in the right lane instead of trying to enforce charge and enforce our way out of it. That will never happen. That will never work. We've had some some really good conversations and 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 continue to expand those programs. As far as enforcement goes, without getting too far into it, we do have some some solid strategy as far as uh, so people have identified these houses as well to us. We have very strong capable investigators in our intelligence and our gang-related work. So we have uh, established opportunities to, to do some enforcement that way. But we also are going to be doing a program here in, starting here in the fall, targeting those places. Do you have the resources you need to do that? Actually, I would say no, but we are working with uh, our partners to, to get that funding and the resources that we do need. They've been very, very cooperative. We've had some really great successes that way. The resources that we are going to concentrate on it are resources within existing numbers that we have right now, and uh, we'll be seeking it down the road. So okay. I'm not too concerned about that. We know that the MP for the area, uh, Thunder Bay Rainy River MP Marcus Polowski, asked the provincial government to direct new federal guns and gangs funding to Thunder Bay. The last round of funding didn't have anything earmarked for the city. What does that tell you about where the priorities are? I know Marcus has been working very, very hard to find ways to get some funding to us. We have put applications in under the Guns and Gang strategy on a different lane from the original piece. So we are uh, exploring those areas and seeking funding for some of our programs. How does the murder capital of Canada not get additional guns and gangs funding well that's a that's a whole other story <laughs> that's a that's a that's a very big story there was a, a process that was uh, requested of the federal government that we didn't participate in so we didn't uh, take didn't it up a, on that who's we the police the, department the service, yeah didn't ask for the money that's right so now we are asking for the money that's stunning to me. Well, I, you know, I, I can't speak for, for the reasons why. I wasn't, it was before I arrived here. So now that, we're, you know, where we're at right now and going forward, we're definitely exploring all those areas. So whatever was the situation or the decision before I arrived, that was said and done and it's gone past. But uh, now going forward, we are definitely working with all of our agencies, which will allow us to keep our resources to focus on more enforcement. Is it out of control? I mean, murder capital, home takeovers, these overdose deaths. Is is there a sense that something is out of control in Thunder Bay? So I've been around the country quite a bit. And what we're seeing here, unfortunately, because of the situation that we're in right now, the what we're facing in this community with some of the, the drugs and the activity of these different people, it really isn't uncommon in, in other places. I mean, this is something that happens. So... Is it out of control? I don't think it's out of control. I think there's just a, a range of reasons that we find ourselves in this situation. No community ever wants to be labeled the murder capital. But, you know, when you when you go around this community and you see the uh, the people that live here and, and there's the, a lot of great people, even the people that are in crisis or people that are living this lifestyle, they're good people. You know, that's something that even as I've gotten here and I've spent some time here, I don't understand why we have such a high rate. And uh, definitely some of the pieces that we're going to work on in the next while is... Not only the, uh, we mentioned the enforcement of getting in the right lane, but also awareness and prevention and really start educating people like let's catch them early so we can try to get them not to go into this kind of lifestyle. And that hopefully will bring our numbers down. Chief Flurry talked about the need for resources, but the question of who should pay has serious implications, according to Thunder Bay City Councillor Kristen Oliver. I am watching our municipal budget be impacted on a yearly basis by the increase in costs that we have to deliver policing and EMS. 
this is a healthcare crisis, this is a social crisis, but it's being borne on the backs of the municipal property taxpayer. That's not what property taxes are were established to do. That's to create a community where you have recreation and great quality of life and roads you can drive on and water you can drink and roads that are plowed. And we're starting to see now we're having to pull back on some of our quality of life recreation just because of the mounting pressures that we're seeing on the police and the EMS side. So when I when I say we're at a breaking point, that's where we're at this breaking point because we cannot continue to go this alone. We need the province and the feds at the table with us. We do have very little capacity or the ability to drive a lot of our own success because we are a child of the province. So I think in some ways, if you said, okay, this is going to be your responsibility now, and we'd be like, okay, let's do it. Give us the tools, and we'll be on our way. City Councillor Kristen Oliver. I'm Catherine Cullen in Thunder Bay, Ontario, for a special edition of The House, meeting the people who are trying to pull their community out of a crisis. This is our second annual golf tournament in memory of Dana. It is our biggest fundraiser of the year and it helps us to support folks in the community with our, of course, long-term goal to have a women's aftercare facility in the city. So we're just preparing for that today. We have a beautiful hoodies and baskets that will be in our penny auction. Um, lots of pottery and um, gorgeous uh, knitting and handcrafted items, golf items. Um, We've come to a golf course near the Norwester Mountains. It's a beautiful, sunny day. Carol and Carl is busy setting up for a charity tournament for the Deck Foundation. That stands for Dana Elizabeth Carl, her daughter. The foundation tries to support people in recovery. Today, Carolyn is joined by other mothers who've also lost children, many after a relapse. Carolyn tells her story first. Dana had been sober for almost 10 months and um, she had a relapse, which due to the toxicity in the the drugs today, she overdosed and, and passed away. I very soon after recognized the need for more resources. So uh, a light went on with a few of her girlfriends after her her passing and we thought wouldn't this be a great thing to do in Dana's memory to start something in Thunder Bay and start recruiting all the moms getting together and trying to find some solutions to this this I call it a catastrophic uh, crisis that we're facing. My name is Faye Pettypiece and I am the mother to Jessica Jonasson who passed away sadly on August 6th 2022. Much like Carolyn's story, um, my daughter was almost three years clean. Um, I spent money and sent her away to a treatment centre. She was doing so well. Um, And then I wanted to go out on my birthday, August 5th, with my three kids. And she wanted to stay out. And as a mother, I I thought, well, she's 30, she's going to be 32. I can't say no. Um... But I did have a lovely dinner with my three children. She stayed behind and met up with a friend. And again, um, it was a lethal dose of fentanyl that she took. The coroner said there was no trauma. It was instant. Um, She died in my home. I I found her. Um, You you found her? I did. I could not revive her. 
I had to call my husband down because I panicked. And he came down, and um, we had 911 on the phone. The paramedics came, the firemen came. I don't know how many police were at my home. And uh, the paramedic came up to tell me that my daughter didn't make it. But I kind of knew. Um, as a mom, you kind of know. And I just kind of went numb. I don't even remember how many people were in my house. There were so many police officers coming and going and fire trucks. And But the saddest part for me that I... I won't get out of my head. I can't get out of my head. I've even gone for help for it. Is when they carried her out in the body bag. And they drop her beside the door. And then they bring the stretcher up and they put her in the... They put her in the van and take her to the funeral home. Or to the hospital. I just think her, you know, being clean for that long, her body couldn't take it. But how do you know they're going to relapse, right? Like... It, it, as a mother, you feel like a failure, like I shouldn't have gone out that night, or I don't know. It's it's tough, tough. And not only are you grieving her, but your life has also changed. You're caring for your grandsons now. Can you tell me about that? I am caring for Tobias and Tyrion. Um, Tyrion is just turned six, and Tobias is eight. They were doing pretty good. Um, we we were going through counseling throughout the year, at the hospice, which was wonderful. The people there are amazing. Um, but now I'm finding like they're struggling a little bit right now because Tobias will sit on the stair and cry like you know I miss mom, or he'll come home from school excited about something and he can't tell mummy. But. Um, I just try to encourage them that mom's here, like mom's here, you know. And then one morning, which was, <laughs> I was standing outside with waiting for them to get on the bus and Tyrion says to me, oh, mom's in the tree. And I said, excuse me? He said, mommy's over there. I said, what are you talking about? And my shiver's on my neck and he says, yeah, mommy's over there, just listen. And I could hear a bird or whatever. Aww. But sometimes I think like they're little, mo- I don't know, spirits come. I don't know, I got to believe, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, Faye, if I can interrupt for a minute, like when you're saying your grandsons are like happy at times and then they're like, okay, mommy can come home now. Let's talk to mommy. I I feel that about Dana and I'm sure we all do. Like we're strong and we do what we need to do to get through. And then you have those tired, weak moments and you're like, oh, I wish they could just come home. And I cannot imagine. I don't have two little grandsons looking up at me. So I feel like I want to give you a bigger hug than I need, you know, because I can't imagine that. Well, I just want to say sometimes I feel blessed because I have part of her. When you when you turn it the other way, I yes. have part of her still here that right. I can hold her and squeeze her. But for the longest time, and I guess this is part of the grief, you just think they're gone away, they're coming home. And sometimes like it, I just think, yeah, she's coming home for supper. Yeah. But they're not. My name is Wendy Gadette. I am the mother of Tucker Gadette. My son passed away on October 27, 2022 at the age of 16. He was poisoned by fentanyl. My son, he, he was at home when he passed away. He was grounded for a month and someone was bringing him the drugs to the house when my husband and I were at work. He had recently relapsed he actually was in treatment he got out June of that year 
But unfortunately, the services that should have followed us after did not. And by September, my son had relapsed. Um, oh, I'm sorry. You have nothing to be sorry for. So, yes. So, on yeah, my, my son was at home. He passed away. My husband and I found him. It was within 15 minutes from my last conversation with him till I went upstairs to ask him about a pair of glasses and I found him face down on the ground. I pulled him up, administered Narcan, called 911. My husband started doing CPR. It took them 45 minutes to get his heartbeat back. They did bring him to the hospital, but sadly he passed away. Um, he tried, um, he, he tried many times. He, he wanted to be sober. Actually, the day that he, I found him that morning, he left me a note telling me how he was going to change and he was very sorry and he was going to go back to treatment and that all he wanted to do was to be the good son that he, he knew that he could be for me and that that's all he wanted. But, yeah. And he meant it. He did. He did. He, he did. Thor Cartledge is grieving the loss of her son, Petro. She takes out a newspaper clipping and shows it to the group. The grief that we uh, felt, and me in particular, I am taking my lead in part from the work that Carolyn has done. In fact, her letter to the, the Chronicle Journal on Saturday, January 14th, no less, with this heading, We Can Do More to Address Growing Drug Crisis in the City, was the very weekend, the very next night is the night that Petro died. I had clipped this even that day because this was the kind of article I could discuss with Petro and say, jeez, get out of there. But uh, with the work that that, uh, Mums Stop the Harm um, were doing that a friend tapped me to learn about, my grief has gradually morphed into... A confidence and advocacy but I, I I I don't know if I would have come to that point about this critical social issue which does affect the community if it weren't for what I learned from Petro's death so I, I wanted to share that with you Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We do have a, a sad common thread but I think we can help each other through this and make changes and help other families so they don't have to go through this Nobody should die from a relapse. That is not how it should be when you're addicted. It's an illness, and part of it is relapsing. And, you know, I just feel like we need to do what's right. So you know? what is that? Well, I, I sometimes think that, you know, I've been advocating at every level of government. I've been, written letters to the editor. But really, should the moms that have lost their children be the ones that have to start to make the changes? Do what's right. I don't care how long it's going to take. People are dying every day. Let's get moving on this. Specifically, what are the most powerful things that governments could do to help? Well, I think by opening way more treatment centers. I mean, way more treatment centers. I'm looking to do an aftercare center for women because I know the importance. Um, I sort of say, well, if a woman had breast cancer and she went into the cancer clinic and had her breast off but needed a whole bunch of chemo after and they send her out and say... 
sorry, we don't have a spot to do chemo, so we're just going to wing it and hope your breast cancer doesn't come back. It's just a mess. One place that says it's trying to keep people alive until they're able to get into treatment is Path 525. It is the only supervised injection site in Thunder Bay. They can also test drugs so users know what's in them. And upstairs, there's a separate pilot project to provide prescription opioids known as Safer Supply. Juanita Lawson, the CEO of Northwest Community Health Centers, walks past a sign that reads Client Injection Room. And in that uh, booth, that's where individuals will use their substance. The registered nurse will talk to them about, you know, health promotion, whether they know the substance that they're injecting or whether they need to sort of cut down on the amount that they're taking at that time. Uh, And then the individual will inject. There is a timer in terms of a limit of the amount of time that individuals are allowed to be in this space. And of course, as you see, we have oxygen uh, here because this is also where if individuals are experiencing an overdose, they might require oxygen support from the registered nurse to help them with that overdose. And we have lots of protocols in place uh, with regards to how we respond. This year, since March, we've had 91 overdoses. And so that's great because people are in here they're receiving, you know, the care of a registered nurse. We're decreasing, you know, emergency medical uh, time and then also decreasing the need for an individual to go to the emergency department. I asked Juanita Lawson and her colleague, Brittany D'Angelo, who manages the Safer Supply program, what they make of the political debate about whether all public health resources should focus not on harm reduction programs like theirs, but getting people into treatment. There are people saying, well, look, what we're doing clearly isn't working because the crisis has gotten so bad. We need to put all our eggs in the basket of treatment. And we did hear from a lot of people in Thunder Bay that there are just completely insufficient options when it comes to treatment. How do you respond to that argument? I think one of the things that I... um have been reflecting upon is is that treatment is necessary but if we continue to not offer the services that people need to stay alive why have treatment beds um, if people are dying as a result of a toxic drug supply it can become really tiring for the advocates that are working in the harm reduction community when we have people pushing back against what it is that we're trying to do Um, the progress that the harm reduction community has made in the last decade, two decades, and seeing some of that work um, being questioned can be a really difficult thing. And we're all tired. Um, We've made it through a pandemic. We've seen what the government and the entire world can do when they want to put a stop to something like COVID-19, and we're not seeing the same response. And that's hard. That's a really hard thing. Tell me about the pushback. Look, give me an example of something someone has said that you've just thought you found difficult to hear. I think the most common one we hear is that we're enabling drug users, which we know we live in a world where bad things happen and that people suffer from addiction. Drug use is a normal human behavior, and it's not their fault that they're suffering from that. And we're not enabling them. We're trying to keep them alive long enough that they can have some stability in their life. They can hopefully have some of the privileges that that you and I have. And um, just that understanding that they deserve human decency as well. Yeah, I think the pressure to 
deal with this at a political level. I think there's a lot of um, concern as well about, uh, again, some of those myths, right, that we are providing substances here or that people don't deserve to have a space such as this or they don't deserve to have um, because they're making these choices. So I think it's, you know, that's the that's the stigma then that um, or the rhetoric, right, that stops people from asking for help. And so I think that's the that's the the concern is that if we continue to attack it, it feels like an attack sure does I, I do want to give Juanita a bit of space but I also wonder when you see how emotional it is for her what what you think I think that it really puts into perspective that everybody that is advocating for harm reduction and advocating to keep our most vulnerable population alive is fighting that uphill battle. I see it with my frontline staff that are seeing the devastation every day out on the street. And this is me seeing it with my CEO who sits at the tables with the politicians and our community partners and understanding that that's just as hard of a role some days. I went to talk to the mayor of Thunder Bay, Ken Boschkoff, about that political fight and his stance on supervised injection sites and safer supply. Here's part of our conversation. Is safe su- safer supply, is that helping? Is that something you need more of? Or is that, you know, there are politicians who say that's making the problem worse? No, I, I, I would think that uh, it, it's got to be on the helping side of things because if they're ill, they're taking more resources to try and Uh, So we'd sooner have them in a situation where uh, they're receptive to some form of recuperation or, or cleaning up. In terms of actually trying to push back the tide, I mean, there's a real political debate, right, about whether forcing people into treatment is the answer, whether it's more safe supply. What do you think is the path that Thunder Bay should pursue? Well, clearly it's a, it's a combination of all of those things. And within the city itself, we're making some decent progress. But there's a continual, I would say, uh, influx of people who understand that you can get services here, so they come here. And so as, as a kind-hearted community, at, uh, the summer this summer is really... I believe it really has reached new levels. So over the coming months, uh, it will require us to really rethink our capacity and how we either increase the capacity or enlist more support. And that's where the the federal and the provincial governments, uh, we need them all. But but so for the safe sobering site, you're saying this is a thing that we need. You are... struggling more than anywhere else in the province. So why is the funding not coming to help you realize a project like that? I don't know if we're suffering more. Uh, On a per capita basis? uh, Here you can see it more because the, uh, you know, it's it's all along the park system and the waterfront and... uh, But but you don't believe, like, in terms of overdose deaths, are you not the worst in the, the province per capita? I, I'm, I'm seeing a nod that says statistically that's true. So I'm surprised that that's not something that's right at the front of your mind. Well, it, because these numbers come and go, for us as a population, 
are they residents or are they transients? So uh, Thunder Bay has to take responsibility for those numbers that they're occurring in our in our medical facilities. So for us to be able, you know, we're we're trying to cope, and we cannot do it without federal and provincial help in in larger numbers. So certainly, my council is pretty unanimous in trying to address this. So you're not getting any resistance. We are doing what we can. The toxic drug crisis is especially acute in Thunder Bay, felt by paramedics, families, services to support people with addictions, and the community writ large. But City Councillor Kristen Oliver says it would be a mistake to think of Thunder Bay as simply an outlier. We're not unique. We're not. And yet, We continue to talk about Thunder Bay like it's the only place that this is happening, which I find is a disservice to the rest of the province and this country because this is a provincial problem, this is a national problem, and all municipalities are saying, you know, we need support, we need help. Some municipalities may think that Thunder Bay, because we're in the spotlight so often, is it's to our benefit. But quite frankly, I haven't seen any benefit to that. I'm not seeing... Anybody coming to say, how can we support? What do you need? Uh, this is what's worked in our community. Why don't you try this in your community? We, we don't have any of that. We just constantly are the showcase for the province and the country, I guess, to say what not to do. But this is going on everywhere. That's me and Dana. When I had her when I was 28 years old, that's my little baby girl, my firstborn. Uh, followed in her mom's footsteps as a hairstylist. Back at the charity golf tournament, Carolyn takes us past a framed photo of herself with her daughter when Dana was a baby. The golf tournament is taking place only two days after the second anniversary of her death. You know, I... I think we just did it as a fall golf tournament. It just ends up that it's around the time that we lost Dana. It's fall. Uh, It's such a beautiful time of year. Dana would not want us to dwell on the date. She would want us to be out there having fun, being on the golf course, being out here in these beautiful Northwestern mountains where she grew up and went to school. Yeah, so, you know, I don't dwell on the day. I channel my energy to do good things. That's just how I can keep healing and keep growing. Our time in Thunder Bay is at an end. But we are going to stay focused on this issue over the next few months. We'll head to Newfoundland, hearing about the mothers who want a law to force children into treatment. We'll look at where the drugs are coming from. And we'll talk to the new federal minister of addictions. And let us know, are you affected by this crisis? Our email is thehouse at cbc.ca. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. Thanks also this week to CBC's Sarah Law in Thunder Bay. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.